I'm Mitch Green. I'm one of our pastors here on staff. Um, Scott's away for the week. I've been on staff now for about five years. Um, I'm just going to say I'm a pastor on staff because at this point I've served in pretty much many roles. Um, as many of you know, I have been our missions pastor for five years. Um, for a while, I've kind of filled some gaps in communications. And now I'm kind of stepping into the interim role of leading our student ministry, which I am super excited about. Um, I was a student pastor for five years before coming here, and I've pretty much always kind of kept my toes a little bit dipped into the waters of student ministry since I've been here, but I've never been able to fully commit. And so in this next season, I'm going to be diving in as our student pastor. So I'm super excited about that. So if you never heard me teach before and you don't like this message today and you're concerned about me teaching to our students, um, I'm just going to ask that you keep that to yourself. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but again, I'm super excited. Um, this morning, we are going to be digging into our third week in a series through First Thessalonians. And again, because there's so many new people here, I just want to bring us up to speed to where we are a little bit. So Paul um, goes to this church in Thessalonica, which is modern-day Greece. And Paul ministers to this church for what was either around three weeks, is what the book of Acts says. Some people think it might be somewhere around, you know, three months to six months or three weeks. Regardless, he's not there for a whole lot of time. And as Paul's ministering to this church in Thessalonica, people are coming to Christ. People are becoming Christians in this early church. They're coming to a knowledge of God. And see, what's frustrating everybody else in Thessalonica, Thessalonica is kind of like a, um, think if you're in New York City and you're walking down Times Square and you're probably going to interact with people of many different religions, right? You know, you might see someone, you know, street preaching, holding a Jesus save sign. You might see, you know, a bald man wearing, you know, some clothes that you're not familiar with, handing you a necklace with some prayers. You might see all these different religions. Well, this is kind of what Thessalonica is like. So it's an important city where there are many, many different religions. And Paul comes into town for a very short time with a brand new message about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And people are being saved in large numbers. And see, what happens is it frustrates the other religions in the community. Primarily, it frustrates the Jews. And so Paul is driven out of town by these people. So he's only been there for, you know, say three weeks to six months or something, ministering to these people, and now he has to leave town for fear of his life. And so this is what has happened. So he's kind of established these gospel truths, and now Paul is passionate about getting back to them and ministering to them. Now, something that's really interesting about the letter of 1 Thessalonians, which, Paul, which, sorry, which Scott has mentioned the last couple weeks, is that in every single chapter, Paul makes reference to the end, the return of Christ. Every single chapter. I think there's two reasons for this. The first is either that Paul didn't make it to this point in his teaching. You know, maybe like he just didn't get there yet, you know, in the short amount of time he had to teach them. Or secondly, Paul knew that what they were going through in Thessalonica, they needed to have a proper perspective of what was going to happen in the end to focus on how to live here in the right now in the persecution that they're experiencing in Thessalonica. So the end, chapter one, Paul recaps the gospel. He talks about how we know we are saved, which is what we talked about in week one. In chapter two, Paul then talks about his ministry to them, his desire to get back to them, and he also talks about the persecution that he experienced while he was there. What Scott called last week I thought was good was first century cancel culture. 
Essentially, they were trying to cancel Paul's ministry. And in fact, they're using the fact, what we'll see in this chapter, while Paul's away, they're using this against him to say, if Paul really cared about you, wouldn't he be here? Wouldn't he be in town if he cared about you? Again, these are the same people that drove him out of town. And in chapter 3, we're going to get an inside look into Paul's heart and his desire to minister to the people in Thessalonica and how he's ministering to them even when he can't get to them. So that's the chapter we're going to look at today. But before we do that, there's a general truth that's found in this chapter that I want us to make sure we all agree upon before we look at it this morning, and it's this. I don't know about you guys, but if you ever have a goal in mind, you know, a goal, something you're trying to accomplish, you tend to need to have a plan to accomplish that goal, right? Now, I am a textbook person that will say, you know, I want to lose 50 pounds, but have no goal to accomplish that. Does anybody else do that in their life? Yeah, we, all, we might set some goals and some things and say, this is what I want to do, but I don't want to accomplish it, or, or I don't know how I'm going to accomplish it. We might also do this the other way, where we might have a plan. You know, we might say, like, I'm going to work out all the time, but then we don't really know what our goal is. And then what tends to happen is our, we just kind of fall off the map, right? See, I think this is a general truth that Paul is actually illustrating for us in this chapter when he's saying, this is how I plan to minister to them. I have a goal, this is what I want to do, and this is my plan, and I think we can borrow from that. But before we do that, I want you to check out this video because I think children do a really good job at illustrating what it's like to have a goal in mind without a plan. So check this out. Okay, so I'm going to put this hundred up here. And you have to try to catch it with your forehead, okay? If you catch it, you get to keep it, okay? The whole thing. Ready, set, Yeah, so again, kids illustrate this so incredibly well. You can pretty much say, hey, go do this. Give them any sort of challenge, and they'll probably take you up on it. But the reality is that often they're not thinking about what do they actually need to do to accomplish the task at hand, and is it worth it? You know, I may get $100, but I'm also going to slam my head against the door. You know, or the third illustration, I think it really like illustrates the opposite side of the principle. She, she has an idea, again, of what she wants to do. She just doesn't know what's going to happen along the way. And her plan is infected. So again, in life, I think we all can accept the idea that when we want to have a goal, or that we have to have a goal of what we want to accomplish. And then secondly, we have to have a plan that says, how are we going to get there? And we still might make mistakes along the way, but without those two things, it's, you know, we're probably going to miss the mark. I love this quote. It says, a goal without a plan is a wish. It's simply a wish. Now, why am I saying this? Because this isn't really directly pulled from, you know, the letter to, first, uh, letter to the Thessalonians. But I'm saying this because Paul shows incredible intentionality in the way that he ministers to the people in the world. Unbelievable intentionality. 
He has thought through every step of how he's going to minister to them, all motivated by one simple goal, which is to stand before Jesus Christ at the end and feel joy. That is his goal. And so today he's going to illustrate for us his plan to accomplish that goal. So if you'll stand with me this morning, we're going to read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 through 313. If you're reading out of the Pew Bible, it's page 986. So Paul begins with this. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope and joy or crown and boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in the faith, that no one would be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just so as you know. For this reason, I could not bear it no longer. I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Verse 6. But now that Timothy had come to us from you and he had brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember, uh, remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you throughout our faith. For now we live if you are standing, face, or standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. As we pray more earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in our faith. Now may our God, Father himself, and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make his increase and abound in love for one another and for all. As we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God, God our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with his saints. Let's pray this morning. Father God, Lord, I'm so thankful um, for Paul's message to the first century church, um, the encouragement that he gives them, Father. I'm thankful for the witness and the testimony that Paul's ministry was to them, the encouragement and that it is to us, the intentionality that his ministry had for them and how it impacts even our life today. And Father God, I just pray that as we look at these words this morning that we will be encouraged. Um, God, that we'll be encouraged to think about those around us with the same level of care um, as the early church did, Father. So God, we thank you. We ask that the Spirit works as we look through the text this morning, Father. We ask that you guide our steps. It's in your Son, Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can take a seat. So again, we're going to ask these same two questions this morning that we just discussed of Paul's ministry. What is his goal? What is our goal? And secondly, what is his plan to minister to them? And I believe Paul's goal is defined in the first couple verses we read. This is 2.17 through 20. Paul begins and he says this. He says, but since we were torn 
away from you. Let's pause there for a second. Again, what is Paul referencing? Paul is referencing the fact that he was driven out of town by those of the other religion. He was literally forced to leave. So this is what he's saying. Since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart. Again, he's saying, even though we left, I never stopped caring about you. We endeavored the more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, Paul again, but Satan hindered us. Now, a couple things we should think about here when we're thinking about the people that we minister to in our life. The great Apostle Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, still was hindered sometimes in his efforts in ministry. Not everybody that Paul wanted to minister to was he able to. That on this side of heaven, even Paul was hindered from ministering to people. Second thing that's really, really cool, and honestly, I think this is one of the coolest things about this passage this morning. Think about this. Let's zoom out a little bit. From Paul's perspective, Satan hindered his ability to minister to the church in Thessalonica. But guess what that meant? Paul had to write a letter. Paul had to write a letter to them because he couldn't go to them. Thessalonians is one of the first letters that Paul wrote in the entire New Testament. Connect the dots here with me for a moment. We might not have Paul's letters if Satan had hindered his ability for him to go to the church in Thessalonica. This very well may have been the beginning of Paul's writing ministry. I don't know if you think that's cool. I think that's pretty incredible. That from Paul's perspective, he thinks he is hindered to minister to this church, but yet this might be the foundation of the New Testament because while he's hindered, God has a bigger plan. He wants to see him face to face. It's his greatest desire, but he's forced to write them a letter which might very well be the foundation of the New Testament and at least the foundation of Paul's writing ministry. Would he wrote a letter again if it wasn't effective? Probably not. So very cool, very cool. So Satan hinders us, sometimes seems like a roadblock, but God might actually have a bigger plan for it. He goes on and he says, for what is our hope and joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. Two thoughts here from this verse. First, crown of boasting or joy. I wonder what the picture is that we get in our mind, right? We might have ourselves sitting up on a throne, wearing a crown, a king's crown. That's more common what we would think of, right? This is actually not at all the picture that Paul's trying to display for us here. See, think about this. We're in, we're in Greece, right? What's common in Greece? The Olympic Games, See, Paul is borrowing from an analogy that he does often. You know, he talks about running a race in Philippians. Well, to the church in Thessalonica, he's actually borrowing from the imagery of a crowning ceremony at an Olympic Games. Can we get this picture up here real quick? So this is a more accurate picture of what Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about receiving a crown and receiving the glory. He's saying that one day we will stand before Jesus, and all that we have done in our life will be recognized. And he says, what is going to cause us to stand before Jesus with joy? The way that we minister to people, the ministry that we have to people. He says, what is going to be our crown of boasting? It's going to be those that we've ministered to. Now, the last thing about this verse that he says, at his coming, 
This is the first time that this, ver- this word is used actually in the entire New Testament. It's, it's parousia, and for those of you who know Greek, you're going to say that's probably pronounced wrong. Maybe it is. But parousia is the word. This is literally talking about the second advent. See, one of the things that we know as we go throughout this series, as we've been saying th- since week one, is that every single chapter, Paul brings back up the return of Christ. So, how do we know what Paul's goal is? Well, Paul's goal is to stand before Christ in joy at the end. He wants to have joy as he stands before Christ at the second advent upon his return. How's he going to do that? Well, he's going to do that by ministering to people with everything he's got. Giving all that he has so he can stand before God, and what he's saying is, my crown, my greatest joy is going to be the people that I minister to. I'll be honest with you, the first picture that pops in my mind where I think of what's the closest thing to this kind of joy is probably the way that a grandma looks at her grandchildren. I don't know if that picture gives you any help, that they look and they go, you know what? I've had much trouble, I've had hardships, it was probably really hard to raise these kids in their teenage years, probably still hard to raise them in young adulthood. But you know what? It was worth it. See, Paul is thinking with the end in mind. He knows where he wants to go. He wants this moment standing before God in tremendous joy, and he knows that the way that he's going to get there is by ministering to these people because this will be his crown before the God of the universe. So just to summarize this again, his goal is to stand before God unashamed and joyful. What's the source of this? It's his ministry to God's people. What's the occasion? It's at Christ's return, or secondarily, it's at the moment of death. I love the way Paul says something similar to the church in Philippi. This is Philippians verse 120, where he says, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always in Christ, will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. See, Paul is saying that when I die or when I meet Jesus, I want to stand before him joyfully. And I don't expect to be ashamed, and I don't expect to be ashamed because I've devoted my entire life to ministering to God's people. See, sometimes I think when we have this idea of minister, I think we need to reassess our picture here. And we'll get into this a little bit when we're talking about Timothy, but See, we sometimes, I think we think in our context that the minister is this guy, is like the guy that's standing up here. This word minister is actually borrowed from a word servant, which is borrowed from the context of someone that would be like serving you in a restaurant. See, everybody in the church is a minister. So we're going to ask ourselves later, we're going to say, what is our goal? Does our goal align with Paul? What do we want to see happen in the end? But see, what we need to recognize from this point on is that really we're looking at Paul's perspective, but this is the perspective that we all should have. We're all ministers of the gospel. And again, all of our goals should be to stand before Christ joyfully, boasting by those that we've ministered to, for they are our crown. The second question that Paul answers for us is, what is his plan? See, his plan broadly can be described as to minister to all those he encounters at whatever cost. 
Again, we see early on he's driven out of town from this. But in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, he says this. He says, therefore, when we could not bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone. What's Paul saying here? Paul is saying that he is, and he's going to tell us in a moment that he sends Timothy, but he's saying, it was worth it to me to put myself in danger to make sure that you were being ministered to properly, to make sure that you were staying sound in the faith, that I was willing to put myself in danger for your sake. So we split up, which was not necessarily the smartest thing for him to do, but that's how much he cared about it. See, I don't know about you, I have a tendency sometimes when I'm ministering to someone that I stop at the point in which it becomes um, a like deficit or a problem to me. I go, I'm going to stop here because now it's going to cost me something. See, Paul says, I'm going to minister to these people even though it cost me everything. Even though it cost me everything, potentially my life, we're going to split up because that's how much we care about you. He then goes on and he says, um, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. Again, this is co-worker is the same word for servant of the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in the faith. So what's, got, what's Paul's plan to minister to these people while he can't get to them? Well, first, it's to send Timothy, to send somebody else. See, I don't know about you. I think sometimes in my life, um, one of the hardest things that's for me in the people that I'm ministering to is the pride of one of being the one who actually gets to minister to them. See, this isn't the picture of the first century church. Paul is like, we are all working together. Meaning that we are, if I can't reach you, Timothy's coming. I'm going to send my friend. One of the things I wonder sometimes is that we view ourselves in the room. Do we view ourselves in the room as co-laborers in the ministry? Or do we view ourselves in the room as just people that we're kind of focused on our own little island and our family and how we take care of ourselves and the lessons we need to learn and we need to grow? Or are we co-laborers as Paul describes it? And so Paul says, I can't reach you right now. But you know who can? My friend Timothy, so I'm going to send him to you. The first part of his plan is to minister alongside other people. I think there's four things that we see from this passage that describe what does it mean to be fellow workers in the ministry. The first is this, and this really comes from the perspective of the church in Thessalonica, is do life together. Again, how do they go back to this massive community and find the people they're actually, you know, ministering together. Do you think there was a building like this? Of course not. So how, does, how do they even know to find these people when they go back to Thessalonica? They're together. It's clear. They're in community. Secondly, we see this with Paul and Timothy. They are running hard together after the mission of Christ. Every aspect of their life is to minister to people to the gospel. Literally nonstop. They're going everywhere. See, are we living life together in such a way that we could do ministry together? That's the first thing I think we see from this. The second thing we see is that they're constantly checking on each other. I mean, Paul is so concerned with this church that he literally only spent a couple weeks with. I mean, again, we spent our entire lives together. (laughs) 
but he is so concerned with this church that he's only spent a couple weeks with that he's beginning to write this letter back and he doesn't hear from them, so guess what? He's gonna send his friend to go talk to them. This is the level of care and concern that he has for the people that he's ministering to. Again, I don't know about you, but sometimes I have a tendency when I'm ministering to someone, if I don't think they're receiving the message, I just kind of shut them off. But Paul's like, no, I can't talk to you. I had to leave. I'll send my friend. I'll write you a letter. We're going to figure this out. I want to continually keep ministering to you because at the end, I want to stand with the joy that you came to a knowledge of who God is. So the second thing is that we check on each other. The third thing is this, is that we're suffering together. What do you think is going on for Paul and Corinth? It's not great there either. Again, he can't even like split up because he's worried for his own health. Again, one of the most beautiful things that I love about our church, and I'm sad that we've have to see this reality lately, but is that we suffer together. That we not only minister together, that we're not only growing in Christ together, but we also sit and we suffer together, which is kind of the point of what Scott was talking about last week, right? Like if we're not prepared, you know, for someone to try to cancel our message, like that's when we dip out, when Christians aren't popular in the world anymore. No, 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 we sit and we suffer together and there is where there's great joy. And then lastly, we work together for the work of the ministry. You know, how often do I have a friend that's ministering to somebody, that he's discipling some, somebody, you know, and he comes to me and, I'm, and he might share his problems with me. And my solution is never, well, why don't I go, man? Why don't I go talk to him? Why don't I minister alongside you? See, Timothy obviously was willing to travel for Paul's ministry because he does it all the stinking time. He goes everywhere when Paul can't go. This is what brotherhood in Christ looks like ministering together. So again, we see that we do life together, that we check on each other, that we suffer together, that we work together. This is the first part of Paul's plan is to be co-laborers in the gospel message, doing ministry together collectively, every single one of us that's in the room. Secondly, and more importantly, to be quite truthfully, we see as Paul carries on that his second part is to be fellow workers with Christ. This is the second aspect of his plan to minister to the church in Thessalonica. We see this um, in verse 10, chapter 3, verse 10, where he says, As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, and that we may establish our hearts blameless in holiness before God, our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. Paul can't get to him. Paul can't minister to him. So he writes him a letter. He sends his friend. The third thing he does, and probably the most importantly, he, he says, I have not ever stopped praying for you. I pray earnestly to God for you. See, we're not only fellow laborers with each other, we're fellow laborers with Christ, which should give us such tremendous joy that we don't have to carry this burden on our own. That the God of the universe is at work with us as we're ministering to those around us, as we're trying to disciple our children, as we're trying to disciple kids in the small group we lead, as we're trying to lead our D group, 
as we're trying to reach out to our long lost son who we just hope one day he'll accept the gospel message of Jesus Christ. God, Jesus Christ, is ministering alongside us. So don't miss that. We don't lose hope. You know, I don't know what Paul's perspective was in this scenario, but I know that Paul knew he couldn't get back to them and he didn't like that and he didn't just stop there. See, I want to encourage anybody in the room today that if you have someone in your life that you feel like they've just been reluctant to receive the gospel message of Jesus Christ, that you begin to think through this pattern that we just saw Paul display. I can't get to them, maybe someone else can. You know what, maybe I need to continue to write to them because they live far out or something and I just don't see them anymore and since I've stopped seeing them, that's affected the way that I've been able to minister to them. And then thirdly, constantly go to God in prayer for them. So not only do we see that Paul prays earnestly to them, I think he actually gives us a pattern of how we can pray for the people in our life that we want to minister to. He says this, He prays continually. Again, the first thing he says is that I pray earnestly night and day. I just don't stop praying for them. And this isn't just for those who we think are outside of the faith that we want to come back for. This is for those even inside the faith. You know, one of the things that makes standing up here and preaching with confidence a little bit easier is knowing the amount of people that are out there praying for you when when you're preaching. Again, it's the encouragement that people are praying for you in the work of ministry because we're doing life together. So Paul says, pray continually. The second thing he does is this. He says he's praying specifically about the situation that he finds himself in. After he says, I pray earnestly night and day, he says that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in faith. Paul is saying that, you know, not only am I going to pray for you all every day, but I'm going to continue to pray for the thing that I think the Lord is leading me to see happen in this is that I want to return back to you. Guess what? It happens. Paul does return back to them. He does, you know, get what he desires is to return back to them. But he continually is praying to God that he may see them face to face, not just because he wants to see them, but because he wants them to grow in faith. He wants them to know more about who God is. That is the desire of his heart. So first he prays continually. Secondly, he prays about the situation. The third thing that he does is he prays about their relationship. In verse 12 he says, and may the Lord make an increase and abound in love for one another in love for all. I think Paul's deepest desire for the first century church, and this can be shown in many of his letters, is unity. More than anything, he just wants them to love each other more. Because see, what Paul knows is that if we are unified, nothing can stand against us. See, in the first century context, it doesn't matter what other religious speaker comes to them, what other you know, false gospel someone presents, it doesn't matter what um, persecution they go through, it doesn't matter if they were burned at the stake, nothing was going to break up their unity with one another because it was founded on Christ. Unity matters probably more now in this age than it probably has in the last hundred years. That we stay unified. And yet, to be honest, it's probably one of the things that we're the worst at. We let a lot of things break up our unity. If you want something to pray for the body of Christ, pray for unity. Pray that our unity would be founded on Christ and not founded on other things. 
Because again, that's what he knows is going to protect this church in the time that he can't get back to them. You know, maybe in another context, this is for someone who's outside of the body of Christ. Pray that they find a community that they can be unified in. Maybe that's what the prayer is for you. You know, how can they find a community that's like this community that they can seek Christ together while I'm not with them? Maybe that's your prayer. So Paul, he prays continually. He prays about his situation. He prays about his relationship to them. And lastly and most importantly in verse 13, he says, so that he may establish your hearts blameless and holiness before God our Father and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and all the saints. Again, this is the second mention of the word parousia, the end times. The last thing that Paul prays for is their salvation. Paul says that more importantly than me even getting back to you is that you know Jesus Christ. And more importantly than me being the one that delivers the message to you is that you know Jesus Christ. And more importantly than even you being unified with the other believers is that you know Jesus Christ and you come to a knowledge of him. Because see, thinking with the end in mind means thinking about these people standing alongside us at the end before God our Father, whenever that may be, in joy. Saying, God, these are the people that not only I've ministered to, but these are the people that ultimately, Jesus Christ, you ministered to. That you gave us this perspective. Now let's stop and ask ourselves again, why is this perspective so important to them? Well, again, as we talked about last week, they're being persecuted. They're being canceled. Paul's been being canceled. So this is why thinking with the end in mind is so, so important. I love this quote by Diedrich Bonhoeffer. He says this, and, I, and I, I completely agree with his sentiment here in the first line, but he says, I discovered later, and I'm still discovering right up to this moment, that it is not only by living completely in the world that one learns to have faith. By this worldliness, I mean living unreserved in life's duties, um, problems, successes, and failures. In so doing, we throw ourselves completely in the arms of God, taking seriously not our own suffering, but those of God in the world, that, I think, is faith. See, we need to remind ourselves that the mission of God is something that takes every single aspect of our lives. That we orient our entire life around seeking Christ and welcoming people in to do the same. That seeking unity with one another is of utmost importance. That as we grow in the knowledge of God, we're, we're asking other people to come alongside us and do the same, and we do this at whatever cost. So again, just to recap, Paul's goal, to stand before God one day joyfully. The mission, the plan, is to do everything he can to minister to these people. So I want to flip it a little bit here before we kind of close out the end, and I want us to ask ourselves those same questions what would we define as the goal of our life? Do we think that this kind of picture of the Christian mission is something that's just for the Pauls, it's just for the pastors, or is it something that we think is for us? And what do we desire? Because while, you know, the second coming is something we don't talk about a lot, it's something that is talked about a lot throughout the New Testament. And I'm not getting into the details of who, when, where, why, what. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just saying that the Bible is very clear that there will be a day that we stand before God and there will be people who stand before God in shame and there will be people who stand before God joyfully. 
And we've got one of the first century church leaders saying, this is our, my plan to stand before God in joy. So what is our goal? What is our goal with church? What is our goal with ministry? What is our goal with our family? At the center of it all, it should be the mission of Jesus Christ. That is what Paul is modeling for us. And if at the center of it all, it's not the mission of Jesus Christ, just like we illustrated earlier, we're probably going to miss the mark. Secondly, what is a goal worth without a plan? You know, we could say it all day long. You know, my, the deepest goal in my life is to minister to those around me, to love and to know God more. Okay, how are we doing that? Well, in seasons of my life, it might be going well in seasons of life when I'm not, but I'll tell you, in the seasons of my life where it is going well, it's partnering with other people in ministry. I want to get really, really practical here for a moment. I hope and pray you were involved in the ministries of our church. Um, I've had a tremendous privilege this last year. Again, I made a joke earlier about being our missions pastor who kind of ran communications and now does students. But one incredible thing about this is I have got to see every little nook and cranny of our church this past year. And I'll tell you what, it's incredible. I have sat in membership classes. Um, the Moms Crossing ladies out there who are wonderful have allowed me to help run the tech for Moms Crossing every week, which is such a privilege. I'm literally the only guy that's in there. And, and I'll tell you, like, man, I, I, get, I get a perspective that was so helpful for me going into parenting. But so, so helpful for me. Just things I've never thought about it that way. And I'm like, man, they're right every time. Um, but I have seen every nook and cranny of our church this past year. In a year where our church has probably never been more isolated. I know for some of you, you've probably been like, what can I get involved in right now? What can I do? Or is there anything going on is a, is a question that we hear often. I mean, there is so much going on in the life of our church, even through this pandemic. And man, we are about to kick it up a notch as we move into this next year. And I am so excited about that. So I want to encourage you to decide and to figure out what is it going to look like for you to do life within the context of Stones Crossing Church with other people? Because again, as someone that's seen every single corner, I mean, I've ran tech for our women's Bible study. I've said, I know, it's awesome. I've, I've done ministry in Mom's Crossing. And again, let's just do this just to kind of illustrate this a little bit more. Who in the room is in Mom's Crossing? Just kind of put your hands in the air. Again, just take a look around. There are people that are ministering in Mom's Crossing. Who's in our women's Bible study in here? Okay, who did the men's Bible study that we launched this past year? Hey, who's in a D group? Again, almost all the hands are going up in the room, which is so, so encouraging because we are called to do life together and be co-laborers in the ministry of Christ. If we're not doing that, then how are we accomplishing our mission? Those people will likely be your greatest asset to ministering to people outside of the church community. Paul didn't have Timothy. Who does he send? No one. See, not only let's think of our personal growth ministries, let's think about how those can be platforms for us to minister to people on the outside. So I want to encourage you, if you're someone, you're not involved in one of those things, take a step today. Go to our website, stonescrossing.com, slash discipleship, slash men or slash women, and you will find ways to get involved in our church and to do life together. Because again, it's going to take co-laborers in the gospel to do ministry together. 
the last thing that we need to do this morning is we need to rely on Christ. See, it's important that we're ministering together, but it's third, important that we bring our ministry before God. That we don't just see this as something that we can do on natural means, meaning that we can convince people to, to receive the gospel message of Jesus Christ. That for those that are wandering in the faith, that we can just convince them to come back. But it's most importantly that we see our ministry as we are relying on Christ and all that we do. So again, we have to ask ourselves, okay, what is the goal? To stand before God joyfully one day. What is the plan? To do ministry together. Okay, how am I doing that? And then third, remind ourselves to continually go before God in prayer for Jesus Christ. This is something that I even was a little convicted upon this on my way in this morning, to be honest with you. And you guys know I try to be very transparent when I'm up here. I was, I was, um, and this is, this is gonna, it's almost gonna sound braggadocious, but I don't mean it that way at all. Like the first three weeks of Graham's life, I prayed a very simple prayer for him every day, okay? And this prayer was, you know, God, um, I pray that you form him in your likeness. I pray that you use him to serve for you. Um, and Father God, I pray that you lead us in how, how to parent. Basically every day, I prayed the same old prayer. I've not done that in two weeks. Again, my kid's only a month old. My kid's only a month old. It's so easy for us to drift away from thinking about what is the central focus of the mission of our life. And so it's important that we exist in the context of community that we think about how are we going to minister to those around us with the people that God has called us to. And third, to remind ourselves that ultimately it doesn't matter how hard we work, it's about what is Christ gonna do for them as he meets them. So I'm gonna pray for us this morning and then we are going to lead into a time of communion. Let's pray. Yeah, Father God, we're just so thankful. God, we're thankful that you have taken people in the world that have ministered to us. God, that you've equipped them with the gospel message, which was not just by their own power, but it was by your son, Jesus Christ. And Father God, that you spoke to us through the gospel message. Father God, I pray that we don't lose sight of our mission God, what you are calling us to. Father God, that we would remind ourselves that the central focus of our life should be the mission of Jesus Christ. That it's not just about resting in Christ, but it's also about telling more people about who Christ is. And Father God, I pray that even now in these moments that you help us work out a unique plan for each of us in the room. What are the groups that you're calling us to? What are the ministries that you're calling us to step into? Who are the people in our life that you've equipped us and you've given us the platform to minister to? And Father God, I pray that we do it at, with all costs, with reckless abandon, Father, that we will go before these people with the gospel message of Jesus Christ and we'll minister to them. And lastly, Father, I pray that you encourage us as we rest in you along the way. To your son, Jesus' name, we pray, amen.